Hey everyone, this is Noah, and you are listening to the Eerie Podcast. Throughout history, witches have been seen as agents of the devil. In the 15th to 17th centuries, witch trials were commonplace in Europe and New England. Most famously, the Salem witch trials that began in 1692. What brought this about? Were there really evil witches among this town in the late 1600s? Hey everybody, I hope everyone's doing well. This is Noah, and yeah. Oh, you hear my bird in the back? (laughs) I hope everyone's had a great week. It is full, full fall now. No more of those, you know, random 80 degree days. <laughs> I'm sitting here drinking my white chocolate mocha latte that I made at home. I didn't go anywhere. But yeah, it's been a great fall so far. I've actually been in a weird mindset lately. Doing this research actually kind of helped me get out of that negativity. Okay. Anyway, I'm doing good. I've been pretty physical. I've lost a lot of weight. I'm feeling pretty proud of myself. I just wanted to throw out there if you are listening for the first time, make sure to hit that follow button wherever you're listening to your podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever. It will give you some notifications so that when we post a new episode, you get alerted. So, yeah. So today we're talking about the Salem Witch Trials. I think by now everyone should know what witches are, but (laughs) I thought in light of Hocus Pocus 2 coming out, I would talk a little bit about why the Salem Witch Trials happened because it is kind of a true crime, kind of a spooky story, but also people are crazy. I saw something that a mom, like a very devout Christian mom was talking about this movie saying, don't watch it. You don't know the spells that are being put on you while you're watching it, which to me is freaking insane. I'm sorry, but it's a movie for children and families. Like chill out. It's just a freaking movie. It's just a movie. Yeah. If you hadn't gone seen Hocus Pocus 2, that's okay. I did kind of like it. I was surprised that I liked it as much as I did. I'm kind of hoping there's like a witchy spinoff, but you never know. Would I watch it again right now? Probably not. And did I like the first one better? Yes. But you know, it, when there's a new sequel years, years, years and years later, it's not going to be exactly the same. Like the last one was filmed in the 90s and had that 90s vibe. And that's not possible to do at this point. But I thought it was good. And that's okay if you don't agree. I, you know, have my own opinion. And this is my my podcast, so I can say whatever I want. <laughs> okay, so let's jump right in to the mystery. It's not really a mystery. We We know why. But let's jump into... Salem, Massachusetts a little bit, like prior to the trials and prior to even settlement of this area by Europeans. Salem, Massachusetts was actually inhabited by Native Americans for thousands, thousands of years before it was settled by Europeans. The peninsula that would become Salem was known as Namkeg. I'm going to look up the pronunciation because I hate pronouncing shit wrong. 
Hope you like that song. I wrote that for all of you. Malkiag. Okay, I was right. Okay, cool. I pronounced it right. There's a first time for everything. <laughs> uh, if you don't know, if this is your first episode, listen, I have a bad habit of pronouncing things so horribly. I, I try my best. I can literally listen to something. And for some reason, I just can't pronounce stuff. But Nyamkeg is the pronunciation. Cool. Cool beans. Cool beans and hot beans. All right. So at the time, there were not many of these people left in the 1620s. A lot of them actually died in a war with the Tarantine, which is a tribe of Native Americans that were inhabiting North New England, and particularly the coastal main area. Their numbers also dwindled due to a smallpox epidemic in 1617 to 1619. And this disease obviously was contracted by people who came into contact with Europeans. So it was reduced literally right before the arrival of English settlers in 1626. So they were weak, like the English came and, you know, they did their thing, their usual thing. <laughs> so in 1633, there was another small, smallpox epidemic that struck, killing two of the successors for this, these peoples and leaving one of their remaining heirs scarred. So it was, it was that, it was due to that, that the settlers that came from England met very little resistance on their arrival to Salem. It was not until 1686 when the Massachusetts Bay Colony Charter was recalled by the king in the creation of the Dominion of New England that the heirs pressed their claim to the land of Salem, for which they were paid 20 pounds. So they got 20 pounds <laughs> for their land that their people had inhabited for thousands of years. That's insane. Like, uh, we as Americans already know that we were land thieves and we, like, literally destroyed a lot of people in a lot of cultures, but we paid them 20 pounds. That's... <laughs> Yikes. All right. So that's just a little bit of history behind it. So now let's look at kind of like the pre-child time, like before the witch trials began. So there are two Salems in the late 17th century, a bustling commerce-oriented port community on the Massachusetts Bay, which was called Salem Town, that would evolve into modern Salem. And then there was roughly maybe like 10 miles away inland from that, a smaller, poorer place that was kind of like a farming community. And it had like about 500 people. And that was also known as Salem, but it was called Salem Village. The village itself had a noticeable social divide that was exacerbated by the rivalry between two leading families. The porters, who had strong connections with the town's wealthy merchants, and then the Putnams, who sought greater autonomy for the village and were standard bearers for the less prosperous farm families. Squabbles over property were commonplace, and they were just always fighting. In 1689, through the influence of the Putnams, Samuel Paris 
a merchant from Boston by way of Barbados, became the pastor of the village's congregational church. Paris was studying at Harvard College, which is now called Harvard University, for theology and was interrupted before he could graduate from there. He was in the process of changing careers from business to the ministry. When he came to Salem, he brought his wife, their three children, a niece, and two slaves who were originally from Barbados, John Indian, a man, and Tachuba, a woman. We don't know exactly what their actual ethnic origins are, but some people believe that they were of African heritage, while others think they might have been like Caribbean Native Americans. Okay, so Paris shrewdly negotiated his contract with the congregation, but relatively early in his tenure, he sought bigger compensation. He was like, I want more money. Give me that money, boy. Which included ownership of the parsonage, which did not sit well with many families of the congregation. So Paris had an orthodox Puritan theology kind of way of preaching. And that kind of led to a split that was very visible. He insisted that non-members of the congregation should leave before the communion was celebrated. And in the process, he divided Salem into pro and anti-Paris factions. So everyone was split. Everyone was like, either following this guy or not. So what was believed to be stimulated by like tales told by Tachuba to Paris's daughter, Betty, and her niece, Abigail Williams, and their friend, Anne Putnam Jr., these kids began to kind of start fortune telling, <laughs> which back then was not a good idea. And in January 1692, Betty and Abigail's increasingly strange behavior, Betty and Abigail started to come into fits. And you could chalk that up to being kids like, these kids were all 9 to 12 years old at the time. They would just scream. They would make odd sounds. They threw things. They contorted their bodies and complained of, like, biting and pinching sensations. Some scholars speculated that this behavior could have been a result of asthma, Lyme disease, epilepsy, child abuse, delusional psychosis, or convulsive ergotism. And this last one was caused by eating bread or cereal made of rye that had been infected with a fungus, ergo, which can elicit vomiting, choking fits, hallucinations, and the sense of something crawling on one's skin. And the hallucinogen, LSD, is derived from ergo itself. That could explain a lot, but we obviously don't know. This strange behavior started to spread, though. Other girls and young women in the community started doing some of the same things. The physiological and psychological explanations were not convincing to anybody. <laughs> this was back then when science was not well regarded, unfortunately. The odd behavior was also mirrored by children of a Boston family in 1688 who were believed to have been bewitched, which is a description that was provided by a congregational minister Cotton Mather, in his book, Memorable Provinces, Providences, sorry, relating to witchcraft and possession. And that was released in 1689. And this book might have been known by the girls in Salem Village. Who knows? Anywho, check him out, speaker.
checking my mic, checking my mic. Sorry, sometimes I do that. <laughs> Just uh, make sure my speaker's working correctly in my mic, because I've just been scarred from working on something for a long time, and then all of a sudden, none of it was actually recorded. Fun times. <laughs> so in February, when they were unable to account for the behavior medically, the local doctor, William Griggs, put the blame on the supernatural, of course. <laughs> hey, doctor, aren't you supposed to, you know, recommend medical solutions, maybe? So at this point, everyone's freaking out. So a neighbor suggested, you know, you should have a witch cake made. A witch cake was made, which was made with the urine of the victims and baked by Tachuba to kind of alleviate all these, you know, bewitchments. Super gross, in my opinion. A pea cake? <laughs> no one wants a pea cake. I don't want a pea cake, at least. <laughs> Maybe some of you do. I don't think so, but I doubt it. I doubt it. Gross. Urine. Anyway. All right, Eerie Tribe, I'm so excited to talk about today's sponsor, Audible. Audible is, <laughs> I can honestly say that I use Audible on a daily level. I read a lot, but sometimes I don't have time to just read or maybe I'm, you know, hitting the hay and I need to put the book down and just listen for a little bit. New members can actually try Audible for free for 30 days using our link. As an Audible member, you can choose one title per month to keep from their entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. You can find some $50 audiobooks and get them super cheap by just having this Audible membership. There's so many Audible exclusives as well that you can only listen to on Audible. You'll discover exclusive Audible originals from top celebrities, renowned experts, and exciting new voices in audio, which I might be one of those soon. But for real, anything you're interested in, you can find it on Audible. There's so much on Audible that you can check out. If you visit audibletrial.com slash theeeriepod, you can get one free month and one free book that you get to keep forever. So check it out, guys. Strongly recommend it. The cake actually outraged Paris, who was like, this is blasphemous. This is the work of the devil, the devil. And was like, okay, this is screwed up. Then he went and asked his daughters and their friends to identify who was tormenting them. And they were like, oh, actually it was Tichuba and two other members of the community, which were Sarah Good, who was a beggar, and Sarah Osborne, who was an elderly bedridden woman who was scorned for her romantic involvement with an indentured servant. So all of this is, okay, These you're asking little girls who are not in the best state at the moment, who is tormenting them? It's crazy. It's crazy. All right, so on March 1st, two magistrates from Salem Town, John Hawthorne and Jonathan Corwin, went to the village to conduct a public inquiry. Both Good and Osborne protested their own in innocence, though Good accused Osborne. Initially, Tachuba 
also claimed to be blameless, but after being repeatedly badgered, she was like, okay, you know what? I'm just going to tell them what they want to hear. And she was like, I was visited by the devil and made a deal with him. And what else could Tachuba do? She was a slave. Yeah, she, there was no way she could fight this outside of trying to, you know, suggest that it was others or that it wasn't her. And yeah, we'll go into that a little bit more. There was three days of vivid testimony where Tachuba described the encounters with Satan's familiars. And also talked about a tall, dark man from Boston who had called upon her to sign the devil's book, which she saw the names of Good and Osborne, along with those of seven others that she could not read. So the magistrates were like, okay, we got what we need. We have a confession. We have some evidence. And there's more witches. And then hysteria just happened. <laughs> other girls and some other woman began experiencing some of those fits. One was named Ann Putnam Jr., Ann Putnam's mother, her cousin, Mary Walcott, and the Putnam servant who was named Mercy Lewis. So people who were like identifying witches were considered to be upstanding members of the community. So there was a woman named Rebecca Nurse, who was a mature woman. And she had some prominence. She was like, important, slightly. Many of the accused proved to be enemies of the Putnams. And the Putnam family members and their in-laws would end up being the accusers in tons of these cases. So on May 27, 1962, after weeks of informal hearings accompanied by imprisonments, Sir William Phipps, also who was the governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, interceded and ordered the convening of an official court in Salem Town, presided over by William Stoughton, and who was the colony's lieutenant governor. The court consisted of seven judges. So the accused were forced to defend themselves without aid of counsel. And the admission of spectral evidence or claims by victims that they had been attacked by being pinched, bitten, or contorted by specters, quote-unquote, of the accused. So there were, because of these people giving false accusations, oh, it's their specter that's pinching me, and hurting me. This is obviously like amazing evidence. So we have to take that into consideration. And just to throw out there, witches are fantastic. Like actual like people who practice witchcraft are like peaceful, good people. They're like just love the earth and love doing great things. I'm sure there's like other types of witches out there. What is it both though? Sorry, my 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 pup. What's wrong? What are you doing? Are you okay? Are you okay, Wolby? You're a good boy. All right. Yeah, these specters of the accused were supposedly forms of Satan that had assumed these forms to, you know, do his evil. <laughs> Even as the accused were, you know, testifying on the stand, 
the girls and the young woman who had accused them put on a show. They're like, okay, we're going to do some stunts here. So they whimpered, they babbled, and kind of wiggled around, which was supposed to be, quote unquote, evidence of the specter's demonic presence. So, oh, geez, these specters were like right there in the courtroom, you know, causing havoc. <sighs> People were horrible. <laughs> so those who confessed or confessed and named other witches were spared the court's vengeance. And they owed that to the Puritan belief that God would punish them instead. So people who insisted on being innocent met some harsher fates, though. For example, uh, Tachuba was allowed to speak against her accusers, even though that she was not a white woman. She made it out so that she was like, hey, I confessed, but it was because I was beaten by Samuel Paris. She, like I said, spoke to the devil, and she said that she learned it later from the, her mistress in Barbados, who taught her how to ward herself from evil powers and reveal the cause of witchcraft. And since the knowledge was not supposed to be harmful, Tachuba again asserted that to Paris that she was not a witch, but she admitted that she had participated in the cult, and she made the witch cake to try and save these girls, right? So Tachuba used these outlandish accusations to kind of confuse everybody in Massachusetts. <laughs> she used them to displace the punishment that was going to be put on her. So she like deflected the attention. She was kind of smart about it. Not good to accuse other people who are innocent, but she was able to prove that she was a credible witness. And as a result of that, her life and her reputation were saved. So I think she thought that there's no way to hide from this. There's no way to, you know, get away from all this. So I'm just going to, you know, tell everybody that it's someone else. <laughs> Even though she confessed to a lot of stuff. Like she confessed to like regularly using the occult. She told the judges that Sarah Osborne possessed a creature with a head of a woman two legs and wings. Since it mixed various perspectives on witchcraft, Tachuba confession confused people. And those, like what she said, kind of looked like demonology and caused some of the village residents to believe that Satan was among them. Oh, here we are. <laughs> so the only way to get out of this was to accuse someone else and admit, oh, yes, I am not innocent. It's so strange to me that <laughs> you'd have to admit to doing it, then you'd be spared. But people who didn't, I don't know, it's just crazy to me. Uh, I think, obviously, this is back in the day, and logic was not the most prominent thing. Like, not everyone was educated, and obviously the church owned the world at this point. So I get it. During this time, a lot of people viewed everything going on as horrible. They thought all of this was bad. Like, n not a lot of people agreed with it. But they couldn't say anything. They were so afraid that if they said something, they would, you know, be killed. So the people that were, like, actually innocent, who were like, I'm not, like, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to say I'm guilty of something I didn't do. 
they just ended up being put to death. So strange. So on June 2nd, Bridget Bishop, who had been accused and found innocent of witchery 12 years before, was reconvicted. On June 10th, she was hanged on what became known as the Gallows Hill in Salem Village. On July 19th, five more people were convicted and hung. This included a lot of people, including like George Burroughs, who was a, a minister in Salem Village from 1680 to 1683. He was summoned from his home in Maine and accused of being a witch. He was convicted and along with four others was hanged on August 19th. When he was in the gallows, he recited that the Lord's Prayer perfectly, something no witch was thought to be capable of doing. And that obviously rose doubts that he was not a witch. And people said something and they're like, oh, no, oh, that's, that's, I'm sorry, no. So on September 22nd, eight more people were convicted and hanged of this same year, <laughs> including Martha Corey, whose husband was being accused of witchcraft as well and refusing to enter a plea. And he was pressed beneath heavy stones for two days until he just died. Oh, can you imagine just being squished for days? That's torture, absolute torture. So as they progressed, accusations spread to individuals from other communities. Among the places was Beverly Malden, Gloucester, Andover, Lynn, Marblehead, Charlestown, and Boston. On October 3rd of the same year, Cotton Mother's father increased Mother an influential minister and the president of Harvard condemned the use of spectral evidence and instead favored direct accusations. Yikes. It was just a bunch of shit. So crazy. So this gentleman said, devil never assists men to do supernatural things that are undesired. When therefore such like things shall be testified against the accused parties, not by specters, which are devils in the shape persons either living or dead but by men who are real men and women who are real who may be credited it is proof enough that such a one that has had a conversation in correspondence with the devil as he or she whoever they may be ought to be exterminated from among men this notwithstanding i will add it were better that 10 suspected witches should escape than one innocent person should be condemned. So on October 29th, with accusations of witchcraft extended to include his own wife, Governor Phipps once again stepped in, ordering a halt to the proceedings by the court of Oyer and Terminer. In their place, he essentially ordered them that you cannot admit spectral evidence. So trials resumed in January, February. Of the 56 persons indicted, only three were convicted. And they, along with everyone that was in custody, had been pardoned by Phipps by May 1693. As the trials came to an end, 19 persons had been hanged and another five had died in custody. So at the end of all this, Tachuba remained in Boston which had very poor living conditions for 13 months because Samuel Paris refused to pay her fees. In April 1693, Tituba was sold to an unknown person for the price of her fees. 
In an interview with Robert Keeliff for his collection of papers on the trials, titled More Wonders of the Invisible World, being an account of the trials of several witches, Tachuba confirmed that Paris had beaten a confession out of her and then coached her on what to say and how to say it when she was first questioned. Insane. People were just so crazy and superstitious back then. It's unbelievable. But anyway, after the trials, in the years to come, there would be a lot of acts that were put in place because of this. So in January 1697, the General Court of Massachusetts declared a day of fasting in contemplation for the tragedy that had resulted from the trials. That month, Samuel Seawall, who was one of the judges, he was like, oh yeah, I'm in error and I feel a lot of guilt from these proceedings. In 1702, the General Court declared the trials had been unlawful. In 1706, and Putnam Jr. apologized for her role as an accuser. 22 of the 33 individuals who had been convicted were exonerated in 1711. And Massachusetts actually paid like 600 pounds to the families of the victims. In 1957, the state of Massachusetts formally apologized for the trials. It was not until 2001, however, that the last 11 of the convicted were fully exonerated, which they were long dead by then, but still... At least they did it. This changed a lot in the U.S. court procedures. And everyone after this was given the guaranteed right of legal representation, the right to cross-examine one's accuser, and the presumption of innocence rather than of guilt. And this all had like a significant impact on what it meant to persecute a minority group. But yeah, a lot of changes came because of this. And, and I'm glad they did because can't just go around willy-nilly taking the word of everybody when there's literally no physical proof. <laughs> Insane. I don't know. Crazy. But that is the Salem Witch Trials, guys. <laughs> what did you think? Let me know what you thought of all this. I loved talking about the Witch Trials. It was cool to kind of jump into a little bit of the history of it. And, you know, I don't think there were really witches among this town. And it's since been proven that there wasn't. But Tachuba may be a little bit of a witch, but, you know, who knows? All right. If you like this, please make sure to follow and leave a review on Apple Podcasts if you can or Spotify. I would greatly appreciate it. I will have some photos and some, like, depictions that are posted on our Instagram, so make sure to check those out. Our Instagram is Instagram.com slash The Eerie Podcast. Facebook is Facebook.com slash The Eerie Podcast. And our Twitter is twitter.com slash the eerie podcast. Make sure to follow those. Like I post stuff at random as well as when I post episodes. If you want some more like photos or things like that, take a look. You can also send us a story. If you have any like spooky stories, this is the time, dude. There is so much spook. It's the month of spook. Let's get it out there. Let's grab our stories. Send them my way. It's info at the eeriepodcast.com. Yeah, I think that's it for today. I will see you next week. And next week, we will be talking about something a little bit different. We're going to talk about Halloween Killer. I will throw out some warnings there that this will involve sexual violence of a child. And I hate it. I hate it. 
but I think it's important to tell the story of the victim itself too, who is Lisa and French. So it'll be a tough one. If you need to skip next week's episode, that is okay. I will give some warnings during the episode before the violence happens. Um, and before I try not to go into too much details about that, because I know it can be hard for people, but I will throw out some warnings before I do talk about it. So yeah, next week, we'll talk about the Halloween killer. And yeah, then we're getting pretty close to Halloween already. I'm so excited. Make sure to check out our sponsor for today if you have time and make sure to follow us so you can get notifications. Thanks so much for listening. Yeah, you, you, the person listening. Keep it eerie, friends. Keep it eerie. I will see you next week. Bye, guys. <laughs>